Hi, I'm Sam Simon, and I'm the grandpa, and I always think deep. Hi, I'm Emily Simon. I'm the granddaughter, and I'm always wondering, in every conversation we have, why does grandpa always think deep? Hi, Grandpa. Hey, Emily. How's it going? Well, pretty good. I hear you're going to be facilitating a dialogue. You mentioned it on mental health on campus. Yeah, so I'm taking a class called Citizens, Civility, and Change. And we talk a lot about community dialogues and how citizens can come together to discuss issues that are important, that people have a lot of emotions about, might have conflicting opinions about, and how they can come together to have discussions about these important topics that impact all of our lives, uh, no matter what the community. So our assignment is to have a community dialogue about how an issue that impacts everyone on campus. And so our community dialogue was about mental health resources that are available on campus, because right now they're not so available on campus and they're very difficult to access. So we wanted to give people a space to discuss that. So yeah, that's what's happening. It sounds really important. How big an issue is mental health on campus right now? I just hear a lot of people ranting about it all the time. UD doesn't really have any in-person therapists. Um, apparently, they treated them poorly, and then they all quit. Now they have like a virtual therapy service that's free to students, but it's not the same. They only have group therapy in person. I've heard a lot of people have had issues with trying to like go to Warner Hall, which is our mental health place. They, they want to ask for help, but there's a lot of hoops they have to jump through to get access to care, and then it's kind of, it's just, I never heard good things about it. So I wanted to give people a structured space to discuss their issues. Not their issues, but their issues with the mental health services. I'm kidding. Yeah, no, it's, but it's odd in a world where we're hearing more and more about people committing mass crimes and, and underneath all that has been some sort of mental health condition, often on campuses and schools and you hear a lot of politicians talking about, yeah, we got to help on the mental health side of things and let everybody have their guns, but find the people with mental health issues. And there you are on campus and you're saying that you don't have those, they're not prioritizing making that up. Do you think it's going to be controversial? I don't. But they never said it had to be a controversial issue. They just said it had to be an issue that you think you could facilitate a conversation about. Yeah. Now, I thought for a minute we were going to talk about mental health, and I was going to ask, well, what do you think mental health is? Well, why can't we do that? We can. What do you think mental health is? That's a great question, and we actually found a definition for it, because we have to create a little fact sheet for our community dialogue so that everyone is on the same page and we're operating with the same like set of information. So part of the assignment was like learning how to create that. Anyway, so our great definition that we found, which comes from... The federal government, I'm not exactly sure which agency, to be honest, but we can always post this resource on our website so y'all can take a look at it. It describes mental health as a state of well-being in which an individual realizes his or her own abilities, can cope with the normal stresses of life, can work productively, and is able to make a contribution to his or her community. In this positive sense, mental health is the foundation for individual well-being and the effective functioning of a community. However, they also have a definition of mental illness defined as collectively all diagnosable mental disorders or health conditions that are characterized by alterations in thinking, mood, or behavior, or some combination thereof, associated with distress and or impaired functioning. Under these definitions, substance use might be classified as either a mental health problem or a mental illness, 
depending on its intensity, duration, and effects. So those are some important definitions that I think are important to get out of the way. Not get out of the way, but to establish early on so that we are both operating with the same knowledge base. Yeah, you know, but I think you're better able to get clinical than I am these days. Elaborate. Well, I think about my history and, of course, we are growing up and going through these phases. And I was thinking about, I think young people, teenagers and, and early 20s, I struggled. I think I saw others struggle with self-identity and role and comparing myself into others and what's going to happen and if I'm not doing well, what's going to be my life. And that can make I mean, I think that's normal. I think that's everybody at that age. But you can get sad. And you can get anxious, yeah. and you can. Some people act out. Some people commit suicide. Some people, you know, drop out of school and go to. I don't know what is normal or not. And I thought about one other thing. Well, when did I finally go seek help? Because there's two sides of that. You know, this question of facility. This is interesting. Whether or not one might get help might depend on how available help is. Yeah. And how welcoming, how welcoming that help is. Absolutely. Because if there's a stigma, well, two things, if it's simply not available. Right. If there is a idea or view of good people aren't sad, good people, you know, or competent people don't have mental health problems, that if you do, if you feel bad and need help, that there's something wrong with you, if that's the ethical... Prevailing attitude. Thank you, prevailing attitude, then... People aren't going to seek help, and bad things can happen, I think. Yeah. Both individually and communally. And then the opposite side is that even if they do that, even if they would want it, the absence of availability of that, they may, in fact, both things may go on hand in hand. Maybe the absence of availability, the deprioritization, that big word. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, thanks. if it's not available in your community, people in your community aren't going to do it, and it's not going to be considered a normal thing to do. Exactly. No, that's yeah. exactly right. You know, and part of your question, you know, I thought a little bit about struggling. I struggled more in high school because I didn't do that well. And in yeah. college, I was doing better, so I felt better about myself. It's an interesting phenomena that at least, you know, doing well in school, I felt good. If I don't, I feel bad. It's sort of... Maybe like everything in life, it's when you're engaged in an endeavor and you're trying and you're not succeeding, it can leak and sad and question and get depressed. I mean, that's different than some what might be more clinical caused by chemistry of your brain. And um, Absolutely. There is a big difference. Yeah. But they're both like not great either. Yeah. Well, it's hard to distinguish early on too, right? I really wouldn't know, but... Well, I mean, it's hard for me to distinguish. Yeah, I just think about... This may be different than the topic, and we can move around here, but part of that made me think about the first time I actually went for therapy. Okay. No, this is exactly the topic. Go was, on. Well, but I was a young... I was a... A youngin? A youth? A lad? A professional. I was a... I don't... Okay, okay never mind. Not a youngin, a youth, or a lad. Say that again? I'm, oh, I was just being goofy. A youngin, a youth, a lad. <laughs> I'm trying to think of whether I did while I was in law school. I don't think so. Law school is hard from what I've heard. I mean, I would not know from experience, but I've heard. Well, you know why law school is hard when I was going? I think it's changed a bit. 
what made law school hard? They called it the Socratic method. They teach by asking questions. Okay. But many professors took glee in berating and ridiculing students. Mm, that's a, is it just to prepare you for like being a lawyer, or did they? I get don't know what the, I don't know what the theory was. It was almost like a competing among themselves to be the biggest asshole. Gosh. No, really, it was for many years. You know, the three years I was in law school, there were some great teachers. I loved Leon Green, who was a very famous teacher of tort law. You know, the law of accident recovery. What is that? Wait, what? Wait, hold on. Well, what is the name of your professor, Dan? Leon Green. Leon Green. That sounds like barely even a real name, like a superhero name or something. Well, Green's regular name in real life is Leon Green. Sorry to all the EC fans out there who I just offended, probably. He had a textbook. He had a whole theory, and it was in the competing theory by a professor named Prosser. But at any rate, I think I got the right people. Maybe I got it mixed up, but he was pretty good. He called me a highly underrated student. Nice. He liked my answers. But then we had a contract law professor, I'm not going to mention his name, who... You know, there was like only three or four women in a class of 500. And he so ridiculed one of the women in our class that she committed suicide. And was it the only thing that caused it? Well, we only know that, it, that she committed suicide and that she had been the object of his ridicule. We didn't know whether what else went on. Terrible. God. Life. But it's a style. And it can be, you know, losing confidence. I mean, this is interesting, too. Even undergraduate, losing confidence. You know, it's part of the what happens when you get bullied. You think something's wrong with you. Yeah. And that the bullying is justified and that you're less than worthy and that you're not worth living. I don't know. I, admit, I should have asked it first. Is, is suicide a significant issue on campus? No. And I'm actually, I read a very interesting article, author named Dana Boyd, and she essentially argued that the more suicides talked about, in society, the more it puts the idea in people's heads, the more people do it. And that the best thing you could do for suicide prevention is simply not talk about it at all. Just get well, the idea out of people's heads, which I thought was a very interesting theory. She attributed the rise in suicide in recent decades to essentially the rise of the internet and the fact that people on the internet can talk about whatever they want. They don't have to go through an editor the way traditional media does. So then traditional media was like, oh, if people are talking about it on social media, then it must be something that's okay for us to talk about too, which has led to it more being in the public discourse which means it puts the idea in more people's head, which I thought was a fascinating, fascinating idea. And you know why it's true. I mean, it is true. It's talked yeah. about often around mass shooting. Yeah. There's one, there will be several, if not many. And it's because it plants the, the publicity around it, plants the idea in those who might otherwise have an impulse and right. have thought about it. And so we're clearly in the midst of that. And it's a form of suicide. That you see people taking out their anger and frustration by getting a hold of a gun and walking into places and shooting. But to the point, it is true, whether it's for suicide or even other purposes, when you hear about an idea, people who might otherwise not do it, but they're inclined because they see it, whether they, you know, it could be just about glorification. I want to go down in history. I'm going to try to assassinate somebody. Because they, why? You don't feel you're worthwhile and you want or things are too hard, and it's complicated. You know, I, I don't know if I wish things had been different for me, whether I'd been encouraged 
to be able to talk to somebody earlier in my life. And the reason I hesitate about that, because I'm in a place where I love where I am. Yeah. And therefore, I don't want anything in my past that had been different, because maybe I would not meet here. Yeah. That's, That's so sweet. And on the other hand, you know, I'm like anybody else. You know, you see people, successful people. Most of us, you know, it's interesting. Most people don't talk about their struggles. They think it's a sign of, I don't know if they think, it could be thought of as a sign of weakness. Okay. So you know your grandpa is in the middle of and has early stage Alzheimer's. Yes. And so I now have a memory problem. And yeah. It was upsetting. And we've talked to some people, a sociologist, a little bit to sort of get stable, we being your grandma and I. Sociologist? Well, a social worker. Sorry. I was like, that would actually be really interesting to talk about sociology. You know, memory loss and sociology, that would have been fascinating, but I guess not. Well, it was a social worker. Mm -hmm. But, you know, people to help, you know, going for help when you get confused and, you know, raising children. Yes, you know, the first time we went to talk to us, was that the, no, it wasn't the first time. You know, your dad was a handful. (laughs) Really? Really? And we were his parents and we finally went to talk and get professional help on how do you deal with a teenage son? You may too have to go do that one day. No, wait, doing things for the first time, not having bearing, no good experience, and then you're not sure you're right and you don't know how to deal with it. The mental health part of it, in my opinion, is you begin to blame yourself and you begin to feel less than competent, less than good. So my reason about talking about my my memory issues now, my disease, is most people won't talk about it. They're ashamed of it. Right. No, but it's it's like, I love the way you put that. I really love the way you put that because, yeah, like, of course, you're going to be put in situations in life where you don't know what you're doing necessarily. I don't know what you're doing, but you just don't have experience. You don't know how exactly to do it. You don't know if you're doing it right. And like, that should be acknowledged as like, it's okay to not know what you're doing because well, you haven't experienced everything in life and you're going to experience new things that you may not know how to do and you might have to ask someone to help you about it. And it's okay not to feel ashamed of that. And it's okay not to know how to do everything. I think it's very interesting that you attribute parental health, at least among people who don't have like chemical imbalances in their brain and such, that I think I've never really heard that, but I think it's really interesting and probably true. Well, I would argue in some ways that it is at the core. I mean, it's complicated, because it's what what we were saying then, but it's at each phase of our life. There are new sets of challenges and things that we've never gone through them before. Yeah. And that when you're doing okay. And so don't know how to do it. And so mental health and some part of it is just going and asking for help and advice and, you know, who you see. But, you know, a psychiatrist. You don't have to be a therapist. You could just be like advice on how to do things and not feeling bad about the fact that you don't know how to do it. There are a wide array of therapies. And yeah. Therapists, and if it's available to you, it can be expensive, which is another problem. That's a huge problem. Huge problem, actually. You're right. But if you can get in and see your life, and they can say, you know, I actually had one. It made me remember. I actually had one person I talked to, a psychiatrist or psychologist. You just need more friends. <laughs> but, you know... Managing that, that's awful. Your therapist told you that? That's well, terrible. Gosh. I think he was encouraging me to talk to friends. 
Oh, okay. It wasn't just like roasting you, being like, you need friends. But you know, something I may have taken it that way. But it, well, well, I didn't need to talk to a professional. I needed to talk to peers. You. But the challenge, and I do think this is true, is growing, particularly, well, it's true at every phase of life I'm learning. I'm now learning people are ashamed to admit I have a, a mental health disease. And the, and the reasons are different. I've heard they're afraid that if it, it comes out, they'll be fired from their job or blah, blah, blah. And it can get scary. I think mental health becomes... definitely can get scary. I've definitely met people who are worried. Because with certain mental health disorders, like students at UD, if they talk to a UD therapist, could lose their scholarship because the university's worried they're too much of a liability. Wow. It's bad. Isn't that a problem? It's a big problem. Instead of trying to support their students, they're just like, nope, you're too at risk of doing something that's going to make us look bad. So, yeet, you're on. Well, no, I mean, I, if that's true, I wouldn't. Go talk to my college lobby there or somebody or the federal government. Legislative liaison or whomever. Or, or maybe, you know. Apparently, this is like a common practice among universities. Well, it should also violate confidentiality. You should be able to go. That's so interesting. So if you want to get mental health on campus, can you do it confidentially? To a point, I mean, I think there are certain things that therapists are required to report. I'm not exactly sure how the policy works. It's very difficult to find online because they don't like to talk about it. But yeah, but that's even the fact that it's hard to find. I know if you can't do it in absolute confidentiality, then the risk of, you know, I don't know all the things, right? Yeah. And so that's why a lot of students actually don't seek out resources on campus. They go off campus, which is difficult because not everyone has a car. Yeah. No, that's send this to the president of the university. (laughs) Make them listen to this. No. But I think having that dialogue would be really important. Yeah, I agree. I wonder whether... I wanted to do it. Whether people would talk about what are their reluctance and if they've ever had to go outside. Of course, you're you're under 21 in theory. You can go... In theory, I'm 20. Well, (laughs) that's you. I'm talking about person. Okay. I guess I'm thinking about how the college might think about it. Well, go to your parents. You're on their insurance. It's not our job to give you mental health care. Saying that they're going to give us mental health care, and look, we built this brand new shiny building where we have all this mental health services that they don't actually have. Is this temporary because of sort of the pandemic? And I don't know. They really don't have enough therapists to be able to have one-on-one in-person therapy on campus, and I don't know if anyone that's going to change. Yeah, is there a medical school under campus? No, we don't have a medical school. I don't know if we have, like, I think they do have grad programs for psychology students. Well, maybe they can help. I know, and then they'll say no. Yeah, or they could. I think they also always create a program to encourage students to stay on, like certain incentives, and just sort of stay with the university. I think the mental health for in our area there were there was you know, so I was in school in the sixties, right, from sixty-three to sixty-seven. And in Texas, and but the larger idea about mental health was there's a bit of negativity. I don't want to say disgrace. What's the word I'm looking for? But you know, you're encouraged to sort of be strong and fix yourself. Not that much focus on mental health on campus at all. Where we did that, and you know, in our family though, we experienced it a lot. My growing up, we had an aunt, my mother's sister live with us. I don't know if you remember the name. It's Julia Alfman. And she just 
didn't have the capacity to be independent. She helped take care of us. She could shop, but she couldn't hold down a job. She was nervous. She drank an infinite number of Cokes, Coca-Colas. That was the thing we saw. And then my sister, who would have been your great aunt Harriet, was finally diagnosed as having low IQ, but she was, she ended up, I don't know if we ever really knew what the mental health in Right, right, right. He did the amazing thing when she was finally seen many years in her, well, I say many years in the late 30s at the Mayo Clinic. They were stunned that she was able to get a college degree. And she worked very hard and was able to do that. But, you know, you don't know whether some of that's hereditary, what causes that. But she struggled and and got through with it. So, you know, there's a history of that. She did well in life. And so there's an aunt. There's a, you know, you have a great aunt. I had an aunt and you have a great aunt who had those sort of issues. So getting, I joke about it in the play I wrote. And be interested in whether you, if you're about to, whether this happened to you between 19 and 20. And that is, I have a history of struggling, seeking help, in, you know, at decade changes, you know, between 39 and 40, 49 and 50, 59 and 60, and wow, 69 is, you know, decade changes make you think about life. You're getting old and you can get depressed over getting old. And then again, it's, it's part of getting into new times and phases of your life. And I do think we hit on it. And that's why I think for young people, being reassured that you're not from Mars, that's my favorite saying that we talked about before, mantra. Uh, No, we've not talked about that race before. Mantra, it was, that came about it even later in life, I'm not from Mars. Where where did did it come from? Well, it comes from thinking there was something wrong with me. Nobody else thinks the way I do. Oh my God, why am I thinking that? And if I say I'm not from Mars, it means... Yeah, I mean, if I'm thinking this, then there are probably a lot of other people think it. It's easy to get into our heads that we're not normal, that we have these crazy thoughts, and you see something, and you have a, well, this must mean that, and this, oh, no, it couldn't possibly. Well, wait a minute, I'm not from Mars. And we all have unique viewpoints, and we all, I think every person does. I, and it's been very helpful for me. You know, there's another thing, MSU. Very state. MSU, another saying, don't go to MSU, making stuff. through State University. (laughs) Making stuff up. It's the same thing, sort of, like the idea. So part of a mental health kind of thing, but a struggle for people, and particularly young people, you make things up. You see things, you say, oh, well, it must mean this. Now, I heard it in the context of of what goes on in the workplace. You know, it's a water cooler, and your boss walks past you and doesn't say hi, is, is reading something. You say, oh, my God, I'm going to get fired tomorrow. He didn't say hello. Well, I'm just making... It's a rational thought, in my opinion. Irrational? <laughs> no, it's not, but it's something I would think. But, well, but you're, what are you doing? You don't know. You're making stuff. There's nothing... They need stuff up. But it, it's important to know that you, we're doing that. But yeah, acknowledge real. No basis for this. And it probably didn't even assign to something real. The lecturer who I heard talking about it said, well, you know, it turns out that the boss had just gotten a call and his daughter was in an accident and he was on a rush. You don't know. You just can't know. And going to ne- the negative and going to th- making things up that are about us. So strong self-esteem is a way of talking about it. 
finding ways to feel that we're normal and learning how to deal with uncertainty. But I think the hardest thing in our life was just, you know, I've said, I've said it twice now. One was, you know, I didn't know how to raise teenagers because we'd never been through it before. I wish somebody told us. Maybe we wouldn't have even had our kids, but <laughs> then you wouldn't be here. <laughs> and when I became a boss. Yeah. That is really challenging because you deal with other people. You're like so responsible for like making sure that these people are able to like earn a living. It's like kind of all on you. But it's not to have Emily. When you're running, particularly in small businesses, yeah, you're managing people directly. They all have different opinions. They may not, may or may not like your style. I'm, you know, you're forced to be in relationship with people because they have a talent. You may or may not have hired them. I'm the one who hires them, and then some may like you, not like it. Gets really hard. It's, yeah, I think what I've done was managing people. And, uh, yeah, I mean, imagine how it can be easy if a an employee doesn't like the job, whether it's the position or if it's your style, to like take that really personally. That is what took, got me in 1980 when I was, finally had a larger staff going to seek psychiatric help because I was I had lost my way. I just didn't know what to do, and I needed to talk to somebody. I did you know, group therapy for a while. It was very, very helpful. So people should be encouraged to do that, and it should be available. I think one thing we've established is uh, hopefully it helps you in your dialogue. People need to have a place to go. It needs to be confidential. And to be there, wherever the people are, you can meet people where they are. I think that's really important. Yeah. And how to get it and how to find it. And certainly in ways that there's no shame attached to it. Yeah, absolutely. So I'd be really interested in seeing how it goes. Yeah. Has this been helpful? Yes. I, this has been great. I'm, Okay, during the dialogue, I'm going to be honest, I'm not going to probably talk too much because I always get annoyed when dialogue facilitators are talking. And I'm like, I, I want to participate and I have something I want to say that I can't say because you're talking. So I'm really going to try to let the let the participants do the talking. So this is so I can get it all out so I don't want to say it during the dialogue that I'm facilitating. That was my secret motive all along. Getting, you know, I actually really did want to talk to you about this. When you said you wanted to sort of maybe talk about this for the podcast, the other idea that came to mind, and which I offer you, is dialogue technique. Okay. But for my improv, yeah, is yes, Andy. You told me so, about the times, Grandpa. Right, but think about it, how to use that. Oh, to... absolutely! I'm not going to shut anybody down. That no, no, especially when it comes to this topic. <laughs> but this is a tool to do what you said you wanted to do. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great you know, in the context of what you just said, a way you don't talk too much, a way of listening, active and significant. Yeah. Yes, acknowledging what's been said and we want to add a little bit, but encourage them to add information. But that's all good. All right. Yeah, thank you for that technique. Thank you for sharing it with the masses. I think that's very, very useful to have in dialogue and just in conversations. Yeah. Of course, Grandpa spent the whole time talking this time again. No, you did not. It was pretty equal. Good. Yeah. I really enjoy talking with you, Emily. And I'll be talking to you too, Grandpa. Makes me think about these two and love to share our generational steps and think about it and see how things are today. But yes, and yes. See, I said but, slapping myself. No, that's the other thing. And... And have a great dialogue. 
thank you. I would say you too, but I don't think you're having one. I'm going to New York tomorrow and do the first work in progress performance of my new play called Dementia Man. Well, certainly I will wish you luck for that. Yeah. Okay. There we go. <laughs> All righty. That's it, folks. See y'all next time.